The world is full of noise. Neil Halstead of Slow Dive, one of my all-time favorite shoegaze bands, wrote on the track Dagger, and I agree with him. Now that may be a pretty obvious statement. You're probably saying, well, Phil, duh, there's noise all around us, all the time. And I agree with you. But how do we sift through the noise to find answers? This episode isn't about shoegaze, but I think shoegaze as a music genre, with its booming instrumentation and ethereal, often hard-to-decipher lyricism, is a perfect foil to what we're exploring on today's episode. The allure of the genre, at least for me, is trying to make sense of the song's meaning, despite all the obscuring noise it creates around the messages it's trying to convey. Silence is a gift we seldom receive. It seems like we're constantly bombarded with voices from all around us, whether it be from the internet, friends and family, or the media, and because of that, we're forced to try and make sense of the world around us, even when everything is coming at us all at once. How do we formulate our beliefs when we can't decipher all the messages we receive? And how do we even know that once the answers are deciphered, they're the right ones? Listening to the Looncast. So today we're taking you on an in-depth exploration of belief, starting way, way back in 1964. Now imagine a lecture hall with 78 students in it. Two psychologists walk in through the door: Theodore Barber and David Calberly. Now Theodore and David ask the class to close their eyes and listen to a recording of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. I know you know the song, it's probably playing in your head right now, and that's exactly the point. Everyone closes their eyes, but Theodore and David never play the song. Instead, after 30 seconds of silence, they ask the volunteers to rate the vividness of their experience. Nearly half of the students reported hearing the song clearly in their heads, and 5% claimed they actually heard it playing throughout the room. Just like the ones I used to know. Wait a minute. What? What happened? A lot of this has to do with our brain's ability to fill in auditory gaps. It's something called the verbal transformation effect. When we hear something that sounds like syllables, we're able to make those random sounds actually form words. It's what happens when you get a clip like this, and hear words. Okay, so it's kind of like when you're in a crowd, and you think someone says your name? Phil. Phil. Yeah, something like that. But Theodore and David's experiment took it a step further by suggesting that when you're primed to hear something, you're much more likely to actually hear it. The hypothesis was that those who heard something that wasn't there were more credulous. Or to put it another way, if you were more susceptible to believing what you were told, you were far more likely to actually hear what wasn't there. Now, we thought this begged a pretty serious question. Why? Why are our brains apparently hardwired to find patterns in random noise? Something that is much stronger when we truly believe the patterns will be there. 
We talked to evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey Stevens, a professor at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, to get a handle on where belief and pattern recognition come from. Um, you know, from a kind of naive perspective, you might think that, well, I, a belief systems should basically tell you what is true about the world, right? Beliefs right. say, this is how the world really is, okay? But from an evolutionary perspective, the answer, you, you might think, well, actually, no, evolution doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily <clears throat> kind of give you beliefs or give you ways to, to create beliefs that are that accurately reflect what the world looks like. Mm -hmm. It gives you a, a way to create beliefs that um, make you a successful organism in the world. So in some cases, you might actually be misled or just wrong about how the world really is, have a false belief about the world, but actually it makes good evolutionary sense for you to have that, that belief. <clears throat> so um, one of the kind of nice ways of illustrating the evolutionary no, uh, nature of belief is uh, you can imagine you know there's there's kind of a classic story which is imagine you hear a rustle in the bushes you know the ancient <clears throat> the, the, uh, the Australopithecines heard some rustles in the bushes right so now they have uh, there's a state there's a state of the world the state there's a two, two possible states of the world one is there's a dangerous animal in the bushes right and the other one is there's not a dangerous animal in the bushes right so you can then form a belief about <clears throat> which state of the world you think you're in. Now, the state of the world you choose to believe in matters a lot because it leads to two radically different choices. Either you believe that there is a predator in the bushes and book it out of there, or you choose to believe that there isn't a predator and you go check it out. So if you just want to be completely accurate about the world, right, then you want to kind of form your beliefs in a way to minimize your total number of errors, right? But in that situation, those two errors that you can make, approaching a, a predator or running away from a, an innocuous branch, have vastly different costs to you as an individual, right? Right. In terms of fitness, which is the main currency we're talking about, right? Your ability to survive and reproduce is biological fitness. If you make the error of running away from just some empty rustling, you only pay the energy cost of running away. It's not a huge deal. But obviously, if you make the error of walking up on a tiger, that's a huge cost. Potentially, that takes you out completely. You're dead, which means that you don't continue to reproduce. So evolution should actually bias you not to have a not to kind of treat these things as equally, treat them equally, and to um, try try to kind of minimize them and really get the best accurate view of what's going on. <clears throat> it biases you to saving your, your own yourself, life, saving your own life. Literally, exactly. better safe than sorry. Exactly. So what that means is, kind of, and from a larger perspective, then uh, what that means is we have evolved to be very predictive, to look for patterns everywhere, <clears throat> because often those patterns do give us information, not just bad information, good things too, right? Where food is going to be, or uh, how to, you know, how to woo a mate and things like this. So we, there's always patterns in the world that we that are available. And often those patterns are very useful in helping us survive and reproduce. So paying attention to those patterns is really critical. Um, but this also suggests that sometimes it's so important to pay attention to patterns that we, we do. We kind of push that bias over where we look, see patterns everywhere, even when there's not anything. Um, and that then can result in, yeah, silly, silly b beliefs on our part, seeing things that aren't 
that aren't there. That aren't. Like Michael Jordan wearing the same pair of underwear that he wore when he <laughs> right. won the, you know, the NCAA championship, right? That was a pattern to him. The pattern was, I wear, wear these underwear, these, I wear these underwear, boom, win the championship. And, and so that is, you know, stuck with him well beyond into the, into the NBA. One critical thing about this, about the psychology of belief, is we often construct our beliefs usually based on some kind of data information. Often it's from other people, right? We're very social beings, and we, <clears throat> and we social, learn a lot socially from our parents and our peers. We end up forming a belief, but what's really interesting is then our view of the world changes based on that belief. So we view the world kind of through the lens of our beliefs and construct our reality around the belief rather than the other way around, which is seeing what the world is like and then generating our beliefs from that. Something initially starts off a belief, mm. and then that completely changes how we view the world. Such that, um, if I, you know, if I asked Michael Jordan, uh, "How many times did you win when you wore your those underwear?" He would greatly inflate the percentage of the times. He would remember the times very well that he won when he was wearing those underwear, but he would forget the times that he did not, that he lost when he was wearing those underwear. Um, and this is called confirmation bias, this right. notion that we um, look for and remember information that confirms our beliefs <clears throat> more so than information that disconfirms our beliefs. So in a big way, this leads us back to Theodore and David's 1964 experiment. We've seen that our brains are really good at recognizing patterns, but not always good at recognizing when those patterns are just random noise. In fact, our brains are great at filling in the gaps to make random noise seem like it has meaning. Which leads me to one of the big questions that I've had about this. When we look out at the world and see some greater order and meaning to life, how sure are we that it's not just all in our heads? More on that when we come back. Imagine yourself tuning your radio and accidentally landing on a station like this. Listening to this kind of feels like picking up the phone when someone is already on the line. You're not sure what it means, but you know it's not intended for you. What you just heard is called a number station. In order to get a better idea of what exactly this whole deal with number stations was, well, we had to do what some would consider the unthinkable. We descended right into the center of the criminal underbelly. Yeah, we went down dark alleys, even met a few undercover agents who spoke in tongues you've probably never even heard of. Numbers, too. Okay, so 
None of that actually happened, but we did feel pretty cool talking to some of the guys who've been listening to and recording these number stations. I went out and bought a radio and put up an antenna, and in the UK at night, I could hear it too. And then we both heard voice messages for real over our radios. This is Web Weasel. He's the host of one of the sites that tracks, records, and discusses the content of number stations. His website is called Prium. At that time, of course, we didn't know much about radio transmissions, and we went and researched how all this worked. Um, and one of the foundations of it is um, to run a transmitter of the size where it would be heard both in Poland, where Danix is, and England, where I am, and even on the east coast of the USA, where 4D is, um, the fact that we could hear it meant that they had an incredibly powerful transmitter that um, a civilian couldn't access, which uh, basically proves that it was uh, military or government-based in some way. So shortwave radio is this wild means of communication that gained popularity in the 1920s. Basically, it uses sky waves to transmit... What the heck is a sky wave? Is it that magazine on an airplane? So sky waves are radio waves that are reflected back to the Earth from the ionosphere permitting them to travel across the curved surface of the Earth. That sounds pretty neato. So as I was saying, it uses sky waves to transmit messages around the Earth, anything from voices to music, oftentimes to ships and planes, as well as places that may be out of reach of regular wired communication. So then what are number stations? Number stations are a specific kind of shortwave radio station that date all the way back to World War I, and they usually send out these weird broadcasts, stuff like random numbers or phrases repeating over and over again, a lot of the time in these creepy, weird voices. They are unknown transmissions across shortwave that have not been confirmed nor denied by various governments. People have never really been sure what they're for. Um, and are believed to be used by military and espionage in order to communicate encrypted messages to deep cover spies and military units. That's right. Supposedly there's a whole world of dialogues that are constantly being transmitted through number stations. Um, with the number stations that you hear where they send the uh, repeat number messages, those use a technique called one-time pads. Now, the way this works makes them mathematically unbreakable or... Um, they are breakable, but because they can be translated into an infinite number of messages, you will never know which one is the correct one, even if you cracked every combination there was possible. It, it's, it's a bit hard to explain, but if you understand the concept of the, uh, the infinite monkeys and infinite number of typewriters will eventually create Shakespeare, right? and you apply that to a number system where the numbers translated from one letter to another, you'll realize why you'll get every potential message as well as the actual message. Some people think this stuff is just noise, but others? You find out about this and you're like, nah, people are making this stuff up. And then you look into it and you realize that actually, no, this, this is real and this is uh, going on all the time. And you get deeper into it and start using different radios across the world uh, in order to hear different stations because they can be quite localized. Um, um, and realize that there actually there really is this big complex world and this stuff is going on. So, the buzzer is the nickname that a bunch of radio enthusiasts like Webb Weasel gave to a radio transmission from Russia which dates back to 1982 called UVB-76. It broadcasts this really short, annoying buzzing sound. Not super interesting, right? Well, when it's just broadcasting that sound, which it does for exactly 25 tones a minute, all day long, then it is boring. 
But every now and then, throughout the transmission's history, something crazy has happened. A voice will interrupt the buzzing. And it turns out, on November 11th, 2010, which was also my 18th birthday, a listener was able to record some of the voices that were interrupting the call. This suggested that those weird buzzing noises were being made by a machine that was sitting in front of a live mic the whole time. That's why every now and then you'd hear voices. We've got recordings of um, when they've accidentally plugged their phone system into the transmitter instead of the microphone, and they've pressed the wrong button. And suddenly a phone call's gone out in Russian, and two people arguing about why things aren't working properly has slipped out while the buzz <laughs> is going on at the same time. Now, we get all kinds of stuff like this that shows the, the human flaws and the, uh, the reality of what's going on. This started a small but concentrated fire on the internet that got a bunch of people interested in shortwave radio. Danik's uh, presented in 4D, who's unfortunately not with us right now, um, basically are the, the three main founders of the free on site and we all got into we we're all sort of into shortwave in a bit anyway and, and uh, after a couple of months really got into it we were listening to the buzzer like 18 hours a day each and <laughs> noting down the messages and recording them <laughs> and talking about them and wondering what's going on because you know no one knew what the buzzer was about back then and um it, it was this you know not one of those fake mysteries you get on the internet which you get loads of it was one of those real mysteries on the internet something that actually existed and these real mysteries that Web Weasel is talking about? Well, some people have tried to dispel these broadcasts as a conspiracy, that they're nothing but noise. But throughout the years, there's been proof that there is meaning behind these stations. Since Freon's been running, there was a German couple who were arrested in 2011, I think. I'm not exactly sure. We've got all the details on the website if you want to have a look. Um, but they were arrested uh, about half past five, six in the morning, um, and they were working as industrial spies, and they'd been in deep cover from Russia, and the husband had worked in various um, manufacturing plants for cars and so on, and was taking the technology secrets and sending them back to the Russians. And the wife was working on this as the communications expert, and as the police bust in, they found her listening to one of the digital stations that we cover, um, and uh, she had to rip out the wires from her radio to her computer, which was translating the message at the time. So. You know, uh, there's been plenty of evidence. Perhaps it's their unsettling nature, their eeriness, the mystery of number stations that make people come back for more. This is one of the real secrets in the world, not one of those fake secrets, as I was saying at the start. This is something that's really out there. It's not, you know, some conspiracy theory or guys banging on about the apocalypse or Illuminati or whatever. It's <laughs> something that's genuine. So, yeah, that, 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 that's for me what made me do this. Throughout history, there have been a number of groups of dedicated enthusiasts listening for hours on end as they try to crack a code. When you first get into it, you, you're tuning around radio, you hear these transmissions that you assume sort of random, and then you realize that there's a pattern to them, they rebroadcast at certain times, they change their frequencies at certain rates, they make mistakes, uh, and you begin to find out how they're structured and how they how they work and get an understanding of them. As you, see, you see it from the outside, and it's this big mystery. Wow, what, what are these weird numbers? What are these weird buzzing noises? What are these weird pipping noises or beeping noises? What is this going on? And then you realize that it's a structure, a pattern, and you can analyze it and log it and display it and realize that, yeah, fundamentally, there's just a bunch of people running it, and they're probably running it for a reason. And you can gather ideas of what that reason is and why 
nail it down, pretty much get what it is, move on and analyse the next problem, find out the uh, next mistake that they make that reveals a little bit more information. So the reason we're telling you about number stations is that they present another possibility to that urge we have to see meaning behind potentially meaningless patterns. Maybe, like number stations, there is something behind what we're seeing. It's just too complicated for any one of us to be able to decode it on our own. This conversation about seeking patterns and meaning raises questions about our own existence, which takes us to religion. How we come to exist and, the, you know, I mean, the, the intricate nature of the way that our bodies work and our minds work, I find that very difficult to believe that those sort of things just came, in by, came, came to be by chance. This is Steve, and he makes sense of the world around him by taking what appears to be random events and framing them through his faith. Steve is Catholic. We talked to him to get a little perspective on how he makes sense of the world using his faith as a lens. Um, religion explains a lot of things that perhaps other areas cannot, like science, like why we suffer, um, why we should have hope, why are we here. I think it answers a lot of those questions. Steve is the real deal. He told us a story that supports his faith and conviction. Uh, I was driving home from the theater, stopped at a red light, I had my headphones in, I was windowed down, I was like, Sunday night, I need to get ready for this week of school, there's one more week left of school, I was just in total relaxation mode. Um, I looked to my right, um, I see this man sort of hobbling along, um, he was walking ridiculously slowly, um, you know, he had a little, he had a sort of walker cane um, and he was just sort of taking one step and then slowly taking another step and then taking another step. I mean, it was, you know, very slow. He was an elderly man, probably in his 70s. Um, but it was clear that it wasn't just, uh, there were some other physical issues going on there. You know, light turned green and I drive off down the road. Mile down the road, um, I just could not get this guy out of my head. I just could not get him out of my head. Um, and this is this is coming from a point where, like I said, I was like mentally already home. I was laying on the couch. I was ready to, you know, do some quick lesson plans, get ready for the week. But here I am driving away, and I keep asking, I keep thinking to myself, like, what if this guy needs a ride? There's no reason in the world why I should have asked that. I never do that sort of thing. But here I am thinking, no, 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 that's weird. He's gonna think you're a weirdo. He's gonna think you're creepy. You know, um, there's no way that you should go back. You know, but I'm driving away. I'm driving away, and and as much as I tried to get this guy off out of my head, um, I couldn't. And then right before I got to the highway, I stopped the car because I knew that if I got on the highway, there was no way I was going to be coming back. And I said, okay, I'm just going to ask. If he thinks I'm weird, I'm weird. If he says no, that's fine. So I drive back and I'm like, okay, if I see him, I'm going to ask. If I don't, I'm just going to turn around and go. So I drive back. Sure enough, he's still there. He's only probably gotten another block farther from where I had last seen him. You know, I pull over the side of the road, you know, and I, lean, I open the window and I say, um, you know, excuse me, sir, um, where, how far are you going? And um, kind of looks over at me um, 
you know, and, and you could kind of see like sort of some relief on his face. And, um, I could then tell that there was also some sort of mental issue going on too, cause he had trouble talking and communicating, you know? And I was like, okay, so hop in the car. Right. So I kind of help him around. I, you know, put his cane in my back seat. I hop him, you know, I, I help him into the car and we're driving down the road and, you know, here I am trying to, with this stranger, um, driving down the road, you know, and I said, okay, where do you need to go? And he kind of, um, pointed out where I need to go. He couldn't really speak very well. I had really tr- hard, a lo- uh, lot of trouble hearing him. So he kind of was pointing and so we're driving and I'm going, okay, how long, how far am I going with this guy? I don't really know. And, um, so we end up taking a left and then we take another left. And, um, and then finally we, t- as we took this last left, he kind of points at this house on the right or on the, on the left. And, um, so I pull the car over and then finally I get, I made a look out the window and you know, there's a, there's a man and a couple other people and they're kind of looking at my car, like who's in there. And then next thing I see there's a police officer there. Um, you know, and I was like, okay, you know, and they're like, is that John? And I, you know, I had my window down and I was like, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. You know, I don't really know, who, you know, who he is. And, um, they come over and they say, John, what are you doing? And you know, where did you go? Blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, they get out and first they're kind of mad at him, but then they hug him and, and, um, and, uh, this police officer says, you know, who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Steve. I was, and she's like, how did you, how did you find him? And I was like, I literally was just driving by. Um, I had no, you know, I asked him if he needed a ride and she said, well, thank God that you did. Um, cause he's been missing for eight hours. Um, and we've been looking all over the city trying to find him and, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's moments like that. I feel like where, I don't know, I would call this the Holy Spirit, um, where you just feel this force sort of tugging on your heart. Because like I said, here I am at this red light. There's no reason in the world why I should even look over and see this man. And even less reason why I should turn around and ask him for a ride and pick him up because nobody does that. And I certainly don't do that. But I did. And if I hadn't, who knows? The good Lord sort of picked me up and said, here, Steve, this is where you need to go. So one thing that number stations and Steve's story have in common is the idea that there are larger things at play. Those moments that you feel like you're a part of a story that's bigger than yourself. Number stations are broadcasted publicly, but the level at which they're encrypted make them virtually impossible to understand for anyone besides whom they're intended. Although anyone can switch on a radio and listen to a number station, only few can decipher the message. Steve's story leads me to believe that he has been able to decode the stream of events that led him to his actions by using his belief system as the key. Was the message that Steve heard intended just for him? If so, what would that say about anyone else in that situation? What would that say about the other people driving by who also saw this lost old man? Was it that the others were unable to understand? Maybe Steve was because his belief allowed him to see a pattern amongst the noise. So, which is it? Is there some greater meaning and structure to the world? Something too complicated for any one of us to make sense of? Or is it all just 
static. is produced and hosted by Shira Kresh, Evan Michelonis, Ben Thorpe, and me, Philip Russell. Special thanks goes to Liz Thorpe, Evan Michelonis, Andy Klingensmith, and Riley Smith for providing some of the amazing music you heard in this episode. Thank you, Jeffrey Stevens, Webb Weasel from Priam.org, and Steve for your insights. Another huge thank you goes out to Lisa and Salas Michelonis, Evan Plaus, Mitch and Carol Rikus, Susan Chomsky, Sam Michelonis, Julie Knapp, The Audiophiles, Joe Ostrander, Emily Malmston, John Burnett, Michael Gigo, Ilana Kresh, John Barth, Aaron Coglin, Camille McCoy, Brad Benton, Sam Carson, Tyler Michelonis, Arian Lynn Kresh, Morgan Hanks, Marissa Kresh, Bill Grennan, Noble Sullivan, Greg Ziegler, Lauren Russell, Ben and Arita, Elizabeth, and Julia Crush. Thank you for your support. Hey, Phil here. Just wanted to take a moment and say thanks again to everyone who's donated to our campaign. We're incredibly humbled by the amount of support we've received in this wild project we've been working on, and it truly means a lot to us. If you haven't heard of the campaign or gotten a chance to donate, there's still time. And don't think we're just going to leave you hanging. We've got great rewards for your generous donations, like limited edition t-shirts that'll go into our own version of the Disney Vault once the campaign ends, some lunar stickers for you to plaster on your laptop and your bumper, and we're even selling our souls, just to name a few things. Check out our campaign before it ends on July 18th. We're packing into our car and embarking on a road trip for the whole month of August all in hopes of finding more amazing stories like this one about death, belief, and the supernatural. Join the conversation. If you've got a story you want to tell us, or you want us to investigate into a relevant topic about death, belief, or the supernatural, don't hesitate to email us at thelooncast at gmail.com. And if you liked what you heard on this episode, we'd be eternally grateful if you'd leave us a review and rating on iTunes. That's what helps us continue to stay high up on the charts and get more people into the conversation. We are the Looncast, and we have questions. <laughs>